Section 20, Introduction. This section lays the foundation for the setting up of the kingdom of God in modern times. The Lord designates the exact date when the church will be organized. He also indicates why that date was chosen and why it is so sacred. The Lord indicates who the first and second elders of the church should be. The Lord then traces the early steps leading up to the restoration of the gospel. First there was the coming of Moroni, then the translating of the Book of Mormon, and a certification by the Lord that the Holy Scriptures are true. In fact, obedience to the commandments set forth in the Scriptures, and by this means it will be determined who shall be saved and who will be condemned. The restoration of the gospel proves that God has not changed. He created mankind in his own image and gave them commandments, but men fell and the Father had to send a Redeemer by which they could be saved. To receive the fruits of Christ's supreme sacrifice or atonement, people must repent and be baptized, and then serve God to the end, and they will be saved. To facilitate the perfection of the saints, God has restored the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods. The assignments and responsibilities of each quorum in these two priesthoods are outlined in this section. Conferences of the priesthood are to be held at regular intervals, and all officers in the church are to be sustained by a vote of approval from the members of the church. The Lord outlines the duties of the members of the church, which include the blessing, training, and baptizing of their children. The Lord says the members of the church are to meet together often and partake of the sacraments so that they can maintain the forgiveness of their sins from meeting to meeting. More serious offenses are to be confessed and dealt with according to the procedures outlined in the scriptures. Those who deliberately fail to repent shall be excommunicated and stricken from the records of the church. As members of the church move from one congregation to another, they shall have certificates of membership showing that they are known to be of good standing in the kingdom. It was the Lord's purpose to have every member of the church feel wanted and important. It took nearly a century to gradually develop enough programs to encompass all of the members. Joseph Smith began the outreach on March the 12th, 1842, by organizing the women of the church in what he designated as the Relief Society. The women meet together in each congregation once a week, and today they are unsurpassed by any woman's organization in the world. Relief Society teachers visit every family in each congregation once a month to check on their well-being. On December 9, 1849, a gospel training program was begun for the children called the Weekly Sunday School. This became so popular it developed into the major gospel training organization for both children and adults. It eventually provided specialized training for children at various ages, the youth of various ages, and the specialized studies for adults. The youth and adults are furnished with individual study guides prepared by the leaders of the church. The Young Women's Mutual Improvement Association had its earliest beginning on November 29, 1869, 
when the members of Brigham Young's family started regular meetings. The idea spread quickly among church communities throughout the West and eventually throughout the world. When Brigham Young saw how popular the meetings of the Young Women's Mutual Improvement Association turned out to be, he initiated the regular meetings of the Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association in 1875. In 1880, it became necessary to set up general boards for the supervision of each of these organizations. The Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association initiated athletic contests that spread throughout the church. Thousands of young men competed, and championship games were held at the Brigham Young University toward the end of each season. The next outreach of the church was unique. A mother in Farmington, Utah, named Aurelia Spencer Rogers, was offended by the rough-and-rowdy behavior of young boys in that frontier community. She asked herself, quote, What will our girls do for good husbands if this state of things continues? Unquote. Then she said to herself, quote, There ought to be an organization for little boys and have them trained to make better men. Unquote. She wanted the program to stress various kinds of activity, including singing. Since the girls were usually better singers than the boys, she included them in this new organization designed to give fundamental primary training to young children. In fact, the organization became known as the Primary. The first meeting was held on August the 25th, 1878, and 224 boys and girls showed up. The idea spread like a prairie fire, and with the support of the president of the church, it soon became a church-wide institution. The primary presidency has always been women, and they have never overlooked the goal of Sister Rogers to train little boys to go up and become exemplary men. When the Boy Scout program was adopted by the church, the Cub Scouts became a vital part of the primary. In fact, the entire program of the Boy Scouts of America was adopted by the church, and LDS troops became some of the foremost participants in the Boy Scout movement in many communities, often young men preparing to become missionaries of the church, prided themselves in becoming Eagle Scouts as part of their training. Literally thousands of LDS Scouts attend the Mammoth Boy Scout Jamborees, which are held each year. To gain some appreciation of how successful the outreach program of the church had become, I asked our Bishop of the Salt Lake Parley's First Ward to determine how many people it takes to staff all of these activities in our ward. Now, we have 553 members, counting men, women, and children. In response to my request, he gave me a computer list of all the members of the ward who serve in at least one official capacity. The total number turned out to be 521 out of 553 members of the ward. This includes 298 regular assignments, 91 Relief Society visiting teachers, and 132 priesthood home teachers. The visiting teachers and home teachers are both assigned to visit all 190 families of our ward each month. This is a lot of outreach. 
and this expansive organization of the church has produced one of the most efficient programs in existence for the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the widespread participation of all active members of our ward in this program has produced a marvelous spirit of love and neighborly concern among the members, just as the gospel teaches. It all grew out of the Lord's basic program set forth in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now we come to the text of section 20. As we mentioned earlier, this section begins with a declaration concerning the formal establishment of the church. The rise of the Church of Christ in these last days, being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh, it being regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of our country by the will and commandments of God in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. The Lord says the founding of the Church of Christ is to be on his birthday, which is April the 6th, which was 1,830 years since he was born. This, of course, was according to the Gregorian calendar. In ancient times, the calendar was supposed to be based on the sun, but nations failed to keep their calendars synchronized with the sun. As a result, by the 1580s, these calendars were badly out of harmony with the seasons. That is why Pope Gregory XIII brought together a body of mathematicians and astronomers to set up our present calendar. The Gregorian calendar is now so accurate that the differences between the dating and movement of the sun is only about 26 seconds. To keep the days of the year synchronized, it is necessary to add one day every four years. This extra day is added on what we call leap year. In this revelation, we learn that the Savior's birthday was not in December, but in the spring when the sheep could nibble on the new grass just as it describes it in the New Testament. So how did we happen to put Christmas on December 25th? Well, by the time the Roman government made Christianity its official religion in the 4th century A.D., no one remembered the date of the Savior's birth, and since Rome was already celebrating the birthday of the heathen sun god on December the 25th, it was adopted as the Savior's birthday as well. Which commandments were given to Joseph Smith, Jr., who was called of God and ordained an apostle of Jesus Christ? to be the first elder of this church, and to Oliver Cowdery, who was also called of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to be the second elder of this church, and ordained under his hand. So the birthday of the church was fixed as April the 6th by direct commandment to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery when they were ordained apostles and appointed presiding elders over the church. Joseph Smith was designated as the first elder, and Oliver Cowdery as the second. And this, according to the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory, both now and forever. Amen. Neither Joseph nor Oliver had anything to do with their appointment to these high offices. It was done by the Lord himself after it was truly manifested unto this first elder that he had received a remission of his sins, he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. 
The Savior reminds Joseph that after he humbly prayed to the Lord and received the first vision, he was granted a complete forgiveness of his sins. However, he became entangled in some of the foolish vanities of the world and received no further enlightenment for three years. But after repenting and humbling himself sincerely through faith, God ministered unto him by an holy angel, whose countenance was as lightning, and whose garments were pure and white above all other whiteness. Nevertheless, when he begged God's forgiveness, the Lord forgave his sins and sent the glorious resurrected angel Moroni to minister to him, and gave unto him commandments which inspired him, and gave him power from on high by the means which were before prepared to translate the Book of Mormon which contains a record of a fallen people and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jews also. Through the Urim and Thummim, Joseph was finally successful in translating the fullness of the history of the Nephites, Lamanites, and Jaredites as set forth in the Book of Mormon, which was given by inspiration and is confirmed to others by the ministering of angels, and is declared unto the world by them. This inspired record is true, and angels such as Moroni and John the Baptist have ministered directly to those who can testify to the divinity of this work, proving to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true, and that God does inspire men and call them to his holy work in this age and generation, as well as in generations of old thereby showing that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. All of this demonstrates that God can minister to mankind in this modern age as he did in the past. He is the same God. He has not changed. Therefore, having so great witnesses, by them shall the world be judged, even as many as shall hereafter come to a knowledge of this work. And those who receive it in faith and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life. And those who open their hearts to the scientific testimonies of these heavenly manifestations will receive eternal life. But those who harden their hearts in unbelief and reject it, it shall turn to their own condemnation. Those who do not accept these testimonies of the numerous witnesses will end up condemning themselves. For the Lord God has spoken it, and we, the elders of the church, have heard and bear witness to the words of the glorious majesty on high, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The elders of the church have only testified to what they have actually seen and heard. By these things we know that there is a God in heaven who is infinite and eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, the same unchangeable God, the framer of heaven and earth and all things which are in them, and that he created man, male and female, after his own image and in his own likeness created he them and gave unto them commandments that they should love and serve him, the only living and true God, 
and that he should be the only being whom they should worship. The elders of the church want all mankind to know that something marvelous has happened in our modern world. The original gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored. God is verifying by modern revelation that he created all mankind, male and female, after his own image. And he has given them a glorious code of commandments to distinguish right from wrong. But by the transgression of these holy laws, man became sensual and devilish and became fallen man. However, mankind fell from God's presence through transgression. Wherefore, the Almighty God gave his only begotten Son, as it is written in those scriptures which have been given of him. He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. He was crucified, died, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven to sit down on the right hand of the Father, to reign with almighty power according to the will of the Father. To rescue mankind from the fall, God sent his only begotten Son, who suffered all the temptations of the flesh and was even crucified. But he rose from the dead the third day and ascended to his Father in heaven. That as many as would believe and be baptized in his holy name, and endure in faith to the end, should be saved. Now the good news is that as many as believe on Christ and are baptized and obey his commandments to the end shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Not only those who believed after he came in the meridian of time, in the flesh, but all those from the beginning, even as many as were before he came, who believed in the words of the holy prophets, who spake as they were inspired by the gift of the Holy Ghost, who truly testified of him in all things, should have eternal life, as well as those who should come after, who should believe in the gifts and callings of God by the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and of the Son, which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God, infinite and eternal, without end. Amen. This blessing was not only made available to those in earlier times, but it will apply to those in all ages from the beginning to the end. They can all receive eternal life by embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father and the Holy Ghost. And we know that all men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and worship the Father in his name and endure in faith on his name to the end, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. This means that all of those who come into Christ in the future are eligible to all of these blessings. But only if they endure valiantly and are righteous to the very end can they be saved. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true to all those who love and serve God with all their mights, minds, and strength. 
This is God's pattern of sanctification for all those who are willing to follow the Savior's pathway to eternal glory. But there is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation. Yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. But even those who have been sanctified must be wary and resist the adversary's unexpected and sometimes subtle temptations. And we know that these things are true, and according to the revelations of John, neither adding to nor diminishing from the prophecy of his book, the Holy Scriptures, or the revelations of God which shall come hereafter by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the voice of God, or the ministering of angels. And the Lord God has spoken it, and honor, power, and glory be rendered to his holy name, both now and ever. Amen. The scriptures are true just as they have been revealed to us. They deserve careful, prayerful study. And again, by way of commandment to the church concerning the manner of baptism, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into his church. This verse makes it clear that those who apply for baptism but must have demonstrated in their lives that they have truly received the Spirit of Christ. It was this verse that caused an explosion in the mind of Oliver Cowdery. He wrote a blistering letter to Joseph Smith and said he strongly objected to this sentence which declared, quote, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto a remission of their sins, unquote. This is in the Doctrine and Covenants Compendium, page 124. He then went on to say in a most harsh and arrogant tone, quote, I command you in the name of God to erase those words, that no priestcraft be amongst us, unquote. And that's from the same source. Only a dedicated Protestant who had been raised in the tradition of Luther and Calvin would recognize why Oliver Cowdery would dare to chastise the president of the church in such a defiant and despotic manner. The whole tradition of the Protestant movement was based on its opposition to the Catholic doctrine of salvation by works. They insisted that salvation and forgiveness of sins was based on faith and faith alone. They believed the Catholic priests had invented the idea of works so they would subject the people to the commands of the priest and pay penance to get the priest to pray them out of purgatory. The feelings of the Protestants were so vehement against the idea of works that they had abandoned the teachings of James that, quote, faith without works is dead, unquote, and that's in James 2 and 20. In this modern scripture, Jesus was trying to restore the correct doctrine. Joseph was deeply aroused by the spirit of Oliver's rebuke. He said, 
Quote, I asked him by what authority he took it upon him to command me to alter, to erase, to add, or diminish from a revelation or commandment from Almighty God. Unquote. This is also from the Doctrine and Covenants Compendium, page 124. It is evident that Joseph looked upon himself almost as a little child who has his hand clasped in the hand of the Lord. To him it was virtual blasphemy to challenge anything God had said. When Joseph visited the Whitmer family, he was amazed. He discovered that they were in total agreement with Oliver. Of course, they had been trained in the same Luther-Calvin doctrine as the other Protestants. It was only when Joseph got out the scriptures and helped them broaden their thinking that they realized that both the Catholics and the Protestants were in error. He told them that this was why the gospel had been restored, to correct these false teachings. Now at this point, I want to mention a word of warning. We are about to hear the Lord set forth a basic structure for the kingdom of God in the latter days. It could almost be called the constitution of the church. But a study of any constitution can be a little tedious, and students sometimes find the constitution of the church a little tedious. But please stay with me to the end of section 20, and you will have covered the most brilliant framework for the structure of a church that has ever been devised. We will begin with the calling of an apostle. The duty of the elders, priests, teachers, deacons, and members of the Church of Christ. An apostle is an elder, and it is his calling to baptize. The calling of an apostle is to be a special witness that Jesus is the Christ. Notice that his office and title is that of an elder, but his calling is that of an apostle. This is why the apostles are referred to as elder so-and-so and not as apostle so-and-so. And to ordain other elders, priests, teachers, and deacons, and to administer bread and wine, the emblems of the flesh and blood of Christ, and to confirm those who are baptized into the church, by the laying on of hands for the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, according to the Scriptures, and to teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and watch over the church, and to confirm the church by the laying on of the hands and the giving of the Holy Ghost, and to take the lead of all meetings. The elders are to conduct the meetings as they are led by the Holy Ghost, according to the commandments and revelations of God. The duties of an elder are to go into all the world, ordaining elders, priests, teachers, and deacons, also administering to the sacrament, confirming those who have been baptized, teaching and expounding the principles of the gospel, presiding over meetings, and conducting such meetings according to the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord. The priest's duty is to preach, teach, expound, exhort, and baptize, and administer the sacrament, and visit the house of each member, and exhort them to pray vocally and in secret, and attend to all family duties. And he may also ordain other priests, teachers, and deacons. And he is to take the lead of meetings when there is no elder present. But when there is an elder present, 
He is only to preach, teach, expound, exhort, and baptize, and visit the house of each member, exhorting them to pray vocally and in secret, and attend to all family duties. In all these duties, the priest is to assist the elder if occasion requires. It is the duty of the priest to baptize, although not confirm, to preach, teach, expound, exhort, and administer the sacrament, to ordain other priests, teachers, and deacons, and take the lead over meetings when no elder is present. They are to visit the homes of each member and exhort them to pray vocally as well as in secret, and attend to all their family duties. The priests are to assist the elders in every way possible. The teacher's duty is to watch over the church always, and be with and strengthen them, and see that there is no iniquity in the church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, nor evil speaking, and see that the church meet together often, and also see that all the members do their duty, and he is to take the lead of meetings in the absence of the elder or priest. It is the duty of the teacher to watch over the church, to prevent the members from developing hardness of heart one toward another, to prevent lying and backbiting. They also have the responsibility to see that the members of the church meet together often and do their duty. It is also the duty of teachers to take the lead in meetings in the absence of an elder or priest. And is to be assisted always in all his duties in the church by the deacons if occasion requires. It is interesting that the deacons are to assist the teachers whenever circumstances warrant it. In our large wards today, we often have the teachers helping the deacons. But neither teachers nor deacons have authority to baptize, administer the sacrament, or lay on hands. They are, however, to warn, expound, exhort, and teach, and invite all to come unto Christ. It is also specifically stated that neither teachers nor deacons have authority to baptize, administer the sacrament, or lay on hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost or administer to the sick. Every elder, priest, teacher, or deacon is to be ordained according to the gifts and callings of God unto him. And he is to be ordained by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is in the one who ordains him. All ordinations are to be by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is by the authority of the person performing the ordinance. The several elders composing this Church of Christ are to meet in conference once in three months, or from time to time as said conferences shall direct or appoint. And said conferences are to do whatever church business is necessary to be done at the time. The elders of the church are to hold a conference every three months or whenever it is necessary to conduct church business. These conferences are now held every six months. The elders are to receive their licenses from other elders by vote of the church to which they belong or from the conferences. The certificate of authority or license to preach will be issued to each elder by his associate elders after they have voted to approve him as a representative of the church. Licenses may also be issued by the vote of various conferences. Each priest, teacher, or deacon who is ordained by a priest may take a certificate from him at the time. 
which certificate, when presented to an elder, shall entitle him to a license, which shall authorize him to perform the duties of his calling, or he may receive it from a conference. In the newly developed regions of the church, a priest, teacher, or deacon who has been ordained by a priest may take a certificate of ordination to an elder and receive a license to perform the duties of his calling. An individual with such a certificate can also receive a license from one of the conferences. No person is to be ordained to any office in this church where there is a regularly organized branch of the same without the vote of that church. Now we come to the notable doctrine of common consent in the church. This verse indicates that no person can be ordained to any office without the vote of that body of the church which he is serving. But the presiding elders, traveling bishops, high counselors, high priests, and elders may have the privilege of ordaining where there is no branch of the church that a vote may be called. Every president of the high priesthood or presiding elder, bishop, high counselor, and high priest is to be ordained by the direction of a high council or general conference. Every president of the high priesthood, bishop, high council, or high priest must be ordained under the direction of a high council or general conference. The duty of the members after they are received by baptism. The elders or priests are to have a sufficient time to expound all things concerning the Church of Christ to their understanding, previous to their partaking of the sacrament and being confirmed by the laying on of the hands of the elders so that all things may be done in order. The newly baptized shall have the fullness of the gospel explained to them before they partake of the sacrament. They must understand what is covered by the new and everlasting covenant of the gospel. And the members shall manifest before the church, and also before the elders, by a godly walk and conversation, that they are worthy of it, that there may be works and faith agreeable to the Holy Scriptures, walking in holiness before the Lord. The members are required to demonstrate before other saints that they are worthy to be treated as brethren and sisters. Every member of the Church of Christ having children is to bring them unto the elders before the church, who are to lay their hands upon them in the name of Jesus Christ and bless them in His name. Members of the church are to bring their children before the congregation of the saints and have hands laid upon them in order to give them a special blessing. No one can be received into the church of Christ unless he has arrived unto the years of accountability before God and is capable of repentance. However, no child is to be baptized and made a member of the church until he or she has reached the age of accountability. In section 68, verse 27, it says, quote, Children shall be baptized for the remission of their sins when eight years old and receive the laying on of hands, unquote. It is amazing how many new administrative details are contained in the Doctrine and Covenants. Baptism is to be administered in the following manner unto all those who repent. Now the Lord signifies the exact wording for the baptismal prayer and the manner in which the ordinance should be performed. The person who is called of God 
and has authority from Jesus Christ to baptize, shall go down into the water with the person who has presented himself or herself for baptism, and shall say, calling him or her by name, Having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Then shall he immerse him or her in the water, and come forth again out of the water. It is the intention of the Lord that the members of the church should meet together often and renew their covenants so as to retain a forgiveness of their sins. Many partake of the sacrament rather casually or automatically when they should be reflecting on their recent conduct and asking the Lord to forgive them for things they have committed or duties they have failed to perform. Some people assume that once we are baptized and confirmed, our sins are forgiven forever. This is not true. Most of us have some offenses we have committed or duties we have neglected from week to week. We therefore need to constantly renew our covenants. As King Benjamin said, quote, Always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and always retain a remission of your sins, unquote. That's in Mosiah chapter 4, verse 12 and verse 26. There is one other passage we should keep in mind, and that is Doctrine and Covenants section 82, verse 7. This says unto those who are members of the church, quote, Unto that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God, unquote. In other words, retaining forgiveness is an important aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who become inactive and neglect the partaking of the sacrament do not retain their status quo. The fact is, the Lord says, their original sins return unto them. It is expedient that the church meet together often to partake of bread and wine in the remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord now designates the official sacramental prayer for the bread and the water. And the elder or priest shall administer it, and after this manner shall he administer it. He shall kneel with the church and call upon the Father in solemn prayer, saying, O God, the Eternal Father, we ask Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son, and witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, and always remember him, and keep his commandments which he has given them, that they may always have his Spirit to be with them. Amen. The manner of administering the wine. He shall take the cup also and say, O God, the Eternal Father, we ask Thee in the name of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this wine to the souls of all those who drink of it, that they may do it in remembrance of the blood of Thy Son, which was shed for them, that they may witness unto Thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they do always remember him, that they may have his spirit to be with them. Amen. Now the Lord emphasizes the need to continually cleanse the church of transgressors. 
either by repentance or expulsion. Any member of the Church of Christ transgressing or being overtaken in a fault shall be dealt with as the Scriptures direct. The kingdom of God is a record-keeping church. Therefore, the Lord imposes on each body of the church the need to be represented at each general conference and to bring the membership rolls up to date for each stake or mission. It shall be the duty of the several churches composing the Church of Christ to send one or more of their teachers to attend the several conferences held by the elders of the church with a list of the names of the several members uniting themselves with the church since the last conference, or send by the hand of some priest, so that a regular list of all the names of the whole church may be kept in a book by one of the elders, whomsoever the other elders shall appoint from time to time. And also, if any have been expelled from the church, so that their names may be blotted out of the general church record of names. The Lord also wants to track all the members of the church as they move about from place to place in the kingdom. The idea is not only to keep track of them by name and address, but to have each member carry a recommend from one branch of the church to another. All members removing from the church where they reside, if going to a church where they are not known, may take a letter certifying that they are regular members and in good standing, which certificate may be signed by any elder or priest if the member receiving the letter is personally acquainted with the elder or priest, or it may be signed by the teachers or deacons of the church. Section 21. Introduction. On April the 6th, 1830, the most important event in the world occurred in a log cabin belonging to the Whitmer family in Fayette, New York, in accordance with the commandment of God in section 80 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the leaders of the church met to, quote, regularly organize and establish, unquote, the Church of Jesus Christ in accordance with the laws of the nation. Six men were required to sign the corporate papers to give the church official status in New York, but the tiny cabin was packed with the families of the church leaders and others who were either members of the church or contemplating becoming members. After a solemn prayer, the people were asked by a show of hands whether or not they would accept Joseph Smith as the first elder of the church and Oliver Cowdery as the second. The voting was unanimous. When the formalities were completed by having six men sign the corporate papers, the people were all instructed to get in their wagons and carriages and drive three miles to Seneca Lake. There the people who wanted to be members of the church were all baptized. Many had been baptized earlier for the remission of their sins, but now they were baptized to become members of the church. After changing into dry clothes, the company returned to the Whitmer home. It appears to have been at this point that the revelatory gift came over Joseph, and he had the following revelation recorded. Now we come to the text of section 21. The Lord began by commanding that an official record be maintained, and the Lord indicated how he wanted Joseph Smith to be identified in the history of the church. Behold, 
There shall be a record kept among you, and in it thou shalt be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church, through the will of God the Father and the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, being inspired of the Holy Ghost to lay the foundation thereof and to build it up unto the most holy faith, which church was organized and established in the year of your Lord, 1830, in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month, which is called April. The Lord clearly wanted the official history to state exactly when the church was officially established on the earth. Wherefore, meaning the church, thou shalt give heed unto all his words and commandments, which he shall give unto you as he receiveth them, walking in all holiness before me. The official record was also to show that God had commanded the members of the church to give respectful obedience to all the commandments which the Lord gave through his prophet. For his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth, in all patience and faith, it is obvious the Lord intended to use Joseph Smith to shatter the forces of darkness and evil in the earth. For by doing these things, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Yea, and the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you, and cause the heavens to shake for your good, and his name's glory. The Lord was well aware that Joseph carried a burden of sorrow for the frustrations and forces of evil which seemed to prevail over Joseph and his family during the tribulations through which he had passed. Now, however, there would be a day of rejoicing, forgiveness of sins, and the pouring out of great blessings on the infant kingdom of God. For thus saith the Lord God, him have I inspired to move the cause of Zion in mighty power for good, and his diligence I know, and his prayers I have heard. Yea, his weeping for Zion I have seen, and I will cause that he shall mourn for her no longer. For his days of rejoicing are come unto the remission of his sins, and the manifestations of my blessings upon his works. Now the Lord made marvelous promises to those who would sustain the young prophet and carry out his instructions. For behold, I will bless all those who labor in my vineyard with a mighty blessing, and they shall believe on his words, which are given him through me by the Comforter, which manifesteth that Jesus was crucified by sinful men for the sins of the world, yea, for the remission of sins unto the contrite heart. The Lord was ready to set up his second witness, Oliver Cowdery, who had been Joseph's witness to many of the great events which had recently occurred. Oliver was to have a high and holy calling to which Joseph was to ordain him. Wherefore it behoveth me that he should be ordained by you, Oliver Cowdery, mine apostle, this being an ordinance unto you, that you are an elder under his hand, he being the first unto you, that you might be an elder unto this church of Christ bearing my name. 
Oliver was given to understand that he was under Joseph. Nevertheless, the Lord was designating Oliver to be the first preacher in the church where he could serve as the great testifier and witness to everything he had seen and heard. Joseph Smith says, I then laid my hands upon Oliver Cowdery and ordained him an elder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, after which he ordained me also to the office of an elder of the said church. We then took bread, blessed it, and break it with them, and also wine, blessed it, and drank it with them. We then laid our hands on each individual member of the church present that they may receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and be confirmed members of the Church of Christ. The Holy Ghost was poured out upon us to a very great degree. Some prophesied, while others praised the Lord and rejoiced accordingly. And that's a quotation from the Kingdom of God Restored by Grant on page 100. After all of these inspired events, the young prophet closes by saying, Quote, we now proceeded to call out and ordain some others of the brethren to different offices of the priesthood, according as the Spirit manifested unto us, and after a happy time spent in witnessing and feeling for ourselves the powers and blessings of the Holy Ghost through the grace of God bestowed upon us, we dismissed with the pleasing knowledge that we were individual members of and acknowledged of God, the Church of Jesus Christ, organized in accordance with the commandments and revelations given by him to ourselves in these last days, as well as according to the order of the Church, as recorded in the New Testament, unquote. And that's also from the Kingdom of God Restored on page 101. And the first preacher of this church unto the church, and before the world, yea, before the Gentiles, yea, and thus saith the Lord God, Lo, lo to the Jews also. Amen. Section 22, Introduction As we saw under section 21, as soon as the church had been officially established, it was necessary for everyone to be baptized, even though Joseph or Oliver had baptized them earlier. The earlier baptisms were for forgiveness of sins. Once the church was established, baptism was designed for both remission of sins and admission into the restored church. Some who had already been baptized objected to the need for a second baptism. There were also some investigators who were Baptists, who had been baptized by their respective ministers. They also questioned the necessity to be baptized since they already considered themselves Christians. Actually, the Book of Mormon provided the answer since all of the Christians under the law of Moses were required to be baptized again as members of the Church of Jesus Christ when the Savior came to establish it among them. Even the prophet Nephi had to be baptized again as indicated in 3 Nephi chapter 19, verse 11. So did Joseph and Oliver on April the 6th, 1830. Nevertheless, Joseph could see that this confusion needed the authoritative word of the Lord so the matter could be settled forever, and this section was the result. 
Now at this point, let me pay tribute to my good friend Wendell Noble, who did the narration for the entire Book of Mormon and also the Doctrine and Covenants. I asked him to do this because he only had a short time to live and was already suffering severely. However, he had the finest voice for the narration of the scripture in the entire church, and I thought it was a tragic loss to have him pass away so that he could no longer be heard. So in spite of his suffering, he responded to my request and professionally recorded these scriptures. After recording the Doctrine and Covenants, he also recorded Isaiah, and then he passed away. Today, thousands of people are thrilled to hear the scripture narrated by Wendell Noble. And amazingly, he never missed any of these extensive scriptures except section 22 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I will therefore fill in these brief four verses along with the appropriate commentary. Now the text of section 22, the Lord said, Behold, I say unto you that all old covenants have I caused to be done away in this thing. And this is a new and an everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning, unquote. It is interesting that the Lord's new covenant was actually the restoration of the original covenant, the one given to Adam in the very beginning. The Lord wanted it clearly understood that any intervening covenants were now considered obsolete. Now the Lord continued, quote, Wherefore, although a man should be baptized an hundred times, it availed him nothing. For you cannot enter in at the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works, unquote. This made any ordinance outside of the new covenant null and void. This is the Lord's view of unauthorized baptisms, even though performed a hundred times. There is no such thing as entering the straight gate into the kingdom of God by an unauthorized baptism. Now the Lord continues, quote, For it is because of your dead works that I have caused this last covenant and this church to be built up unto me, even as in days of old, unquote. The very reason the gospel has been restored was to replace the, quote, dead works, unquote, of unauthorized and obsolete ordinances of the past. Finally, the Lord says, quote, Wherefore, enter ye in at the gate, as I have commanded, and seek not to counsel your God. Amen. Unquote. The Lord could not have said it more succinctly than this, quote, Enter ye in at the gate as I have commanded, unquote. And to settle the matter with finality, he said, quote, and seek not to counsel your God, unquote. Jesus then said, Amen, which means, so be it. We hope you're enjoying this podcast by W. Cleon Skousen. To find additional books and recordings on this and other topics, please visit skousenlibrary.com.